Good morning, church family. I'm sure many of you noticed the new drapery in the back. That, that fence is actually there because work has begun on the sanctuary expansion. So it's an exciting time in our church, not just because of the work that's taking place around here, but because of also, more importantly, the work that God's doing in us and through us. And as we think about the work that God's wanting to do through us, I want to remind you about our upcoming outreach project to the Bellevue community in East Winston-Salem. We're going to head over there on May 25th, and our goal is to provide 200 of those cinch backpacks uh, full of food to the kids that we're going to share the good news of Jesus Christ with. And we're specifically asking for these foods because, one, we know that um, kids will actually eat these foods, and and two, it allows us to give everyone the same thing. And so if you would participate with us in this, we'd appreciate it. You could go to summerblockparty.org and just let us know what you'll be bringing and then bring it back here next Sunday, May 12th. We also have two great connection events coming up. If you're single, make plans to be at Louisville Square um, this coming Saturday for the concert at 7 p.m., and then next Wednesday, everyone is invited to join us at Camp Marywood on May 15th. Maybe some of you have memories of attending uh, a, uh, one of those potluck dinners in the church fellowship hall. Anybody have memories of that? Well, this, this is going to be a bit like that, only a lot better. There's going to be no cleanup. Um, there's gonna, no, no one's going to have to cook. Just come, have a great time. There's going to be uh, activities that people of all ages can participate in. And the best part is, I've been assured that there will be no three bean salad on the menu. So I, I, you're laughing because some of you have the same memory I do. It didn't happen that whenever you went to one of those church potlucks, everybody wanted to bring three bean salad and deviled eggs. So I, I think we're going to improve upon the menu for this one. Well, as I'm sure many of you noticed, our scripture reading for today is from the Old Testament. And I know that when it comes to the Old Testament, many of you probably feel the same way I did uh, the first time we purchased a home. Stephanie and I were living in this tiny one-bedroom apartment in Dallas, Texas, and we were pretty excited to take possession of this, it, it seemed enormous at the time, 1,200-square-foot home. And so we walked into uh, the title office and sat down with the closing agent who pulled out this stack of paper that was about as thick as this Bible right here. And I, I, I'm not sure um, why there had to be so much paper and why there's so much signatures involved in selling a house. Uh, I'm not going to make any disparaging jokes about the legal profession because I've come to realize that uh, we pastors, we have a lot in common with lawyers. You see, when it comes to our use of words, both of us seem to believe that the longer is better, right? <laughs> it's true. Uh, but the only difference is, is that when we pastors, we go over our allotted time. That's, that's always our gift to you. We do that free of charge. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that nice of us? Lawyers don't do that. But, but seriously, if you've ever closed on a home, you know that it's a lot of paperwork. And like virtually every page requires some kind of signature or initial and when that first page landed in front of me, I figured I should probably have some kind of idea of what I was agreeing to, and, and so I started to read it. Some of you have done this before. You're, 
You, you know, e- even though it's written in English, it's not an easy read, is it? it? It was kind of, well, it was really hard to follow, and it was a bit tedious. And so after the first few pages, I looked over at our realtor, and I said something like, I'm just going to assume you'll let me know if there's anything in here I really need to know about. And uh, I'll call you later if I have any questions. And I just went into signing mode because my new goal was to get out of there as quickly as possible. To this day, I have no idea what I agreed to, but our our realtor seemed to think that it was all okay and we trusted him. And so we just kind of went along with it. And I suspect for some of you, you've adopted a similar approach when it comes to the Old Testament. Maybe you've tried reading parts of it. Maybe you started at the beginning and you worked your way through Genesis and then all of a sudden you got to, you know, the instructions for building the tabernacle in Exodus or you got to the the laws for infectious skin diseases in Leviticus and uh, all of a sudden you did like I did with my closing documents. Only instead of turning to a realtor, you thought, hey, this is what we have Pastor David for. And, you know, if, if Pastor David's read this and, and he feels good about it, well, that's enough for me. No need to read any further. <laughs> it's happened. And, and as we begin this series on uh, Elijah and Elisha, I hope to dissuade you of that approach to the Old Testament. We'll see that this portion of the Bible that might at first glance seem a little intimidating or inaccessible is actually quite relevant and instructive. Today we'll be introduced to this prophet Elijah. And while Elisha lived in a world that was very different from ours, we'll see that the issues that caused him to to stand with courage and conviction are really the same issues that we face today. Now before we examine today's passage, I want to provide some context. After the, the Israelites left Egypt and landed in the Promised Land, For a period of about 400 years, they were ruled by a group of uh, judges or deliverers that God raised up. And after that time, the people decided they wanted a king. And so a man by the name of Saul was anointed, and he began to unite and rule over the 12 tribes. And after Saul came King David, and then came King Solomon. And for the most part, during the reigns of David, and Solomon, good things happened, like a capital city was established. Uh, the borders of, of the nation were secured and enlarged. Uh, the economy flourished. This is sort of the uh, high watermark in Old Testament history. These, these were the golden years, okay? Because what happens is after Solomon, things began to unravel. We see the kingdom splits in two. You see that right there after David and Solomon. And we have the establishment of a a southern kingdom that was known as Judah, and then we have the emergence of a northern kingdom that's known as Israel. Now, uh, a man named Rehoboam takes the lead. He's the king for the southern kingdom, Judah, at first, which has its capital city, Jerusalem, where the temple's located. And a man by the name of Jeroboam, say Jeroboam, Jeroboam, Okay, he's the ruler over the northern kingdom. Now, Jeroboam wasn't in power long before he decided that he had to make some changes to the first five books of the Bible that served as their scriptures. God had specified that one of the ways that his people were to worship him 
was by going to Jerusalem at least three times a year to celebrate these festivals to the Lord. And Jeroboam thought to himself, now, like, I can't have the people going to Jerusalem. That's going to be political suicide. They might turn against me. We've got to do something else. And so he got innovative, and he had two golden calves constructed and then installed in these two strategic cities in the northern kingdom. And he said, hey, everybody, you've been making that trek down to Jerusalem long enough. Look, here, O Israel, here are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. You see, what Jeroboam did was he tried to represent God, the creator of all things, as a creation through these bull icons. And he did a a rewrite of God's laws that, that, that God had given the people through Moses to support his innovations in worship. Now, while in the southern kingdom, the people enjoyed some stability and a descendant of David was on the throne, the northern kingdom was quite literally a game of thrones. After Jeroboam passed in a period of about 25 years, the crown changed hands six different times. So we see political intrigue and multiple assassinations. These were some volatile years. But eventually, a man named Omri came to power, and his 12-year reign was marked by relative stability. And he successfully passed the kingdom off to his son Ahab. And this is how the Bible introduces us to Ahab. We'll be looking at the passage that Maddie read for us earlier. If you want to follow along, we're in 1 Kings chapter 16. I'm reading in verse 29. In the 38th year of Isaiah, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days... Helal of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Arabiam, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. You know, if uh, secular historians were to comment on Ahab's reign, they could note some significant accomplishments. Ahab is married to the Phoenician princess Jezebel, and because of this strategic alliance, Israelite goods now had access to world ports. Through his diplomatic negotiations, we see that he secured peace on the southern border, and then again on the northern border. Ahab fortified cities. Uh, He built a palace inlaid with ivory. So in terms of moving the economy forward, and in securing the national defense, one might be inclined to say that Ahab was a decent ruler. And yet, and yet, 
in the final analysis of history, what matters most is not one's accomplishments. It's one's walk with the Lord. It's one's faithfulness to God. And that same thing is true for all of us as well. You know, it doesn't matter how many awards we win or how much wealth we accumulate or how big we build the company. What's going to matter is our walk with the Lord. We'll be evaluated on the basis of that. And Ahab is this guy who is remembered as one who did evil in the sight of the Lord, more evil than all who were before him. He took Israel deeper into a moral abyss. Whereas Jeroboam, the first ruler, he kind of compromised on God's word. Ahab just rejects God altogether. He began to worship and serve Baal, and he embraced all the sexual depravity and immorality that came along with this pagan religion, and he perverted justice in his kingdom. And the text tells us that he did more to anger or provoke, or some translations say exasperate God, than all the kings of Israel who before, before him. That's not something you want on your epitaph, is it? No. You know, when, when I have the opportunity to, to preach, I feel like my natural bent is to kind of come up here and I want to encourage, I want to motivate, I want to spur us on, I want to exhort. But as I, I've spent time in the text this week, I feel that my role this morning is a little bit different. Uh, I, I feel that in light of this, the job this morning is to warn, it's to give caution, it, it's to alert us to danger. See, how did things become so bad under Ahab's reign? Well, let me tell you this, it didn't happen overnight. See, wickedness usually makes progress over time. And what precipitates any downward spiral is compromise when it comes to God's word. I want to prove this for you. This is what nudges a decline forward. You see, someone like Jeroboam comes along and says, well, we really don't need to listen to everything in the scriptures. See, it just makes sense that we shouldn't have people traveling to Jerusalem to worship, so let's make a few revisions. You know, some of the stuff in here, uh, it just every now and then, it needs an update. We need, we need to make it more relevant for our times. So sometimes there's some things in the Bible that, uh, that are going to need a revamp on occasion in order to make sure that, uh, that they're in step with our culture, in order to make sure it's not too antiquated. That was Jeroboam's argument. Now let me ask you this. Does that still happen today? You bet. Earlier this week, uh, on Monday, my friend Eric Shipton, he goes here, some of you might know him, he sent me this article um, from USA Today, pretty popular newspaper, pretty mainstream, and, and this is the, the first sentence in the article. Churches will continue hemorrhaging members until we face the truth. Being a faithful Christian does not mean accepting everything the Bible teaches. And I want to say, Really? Because I'm pretty sure that's the exact opposite of what Jesus taught. In fact, in, in Matthew 5.18, Jesus said that even the smallest letter matters. He said every jot and tittle is important. 
Here's what happens. Whenever we decide that God's word should take a back seat to what feels right to us or what seems right to us, it's a slippery slope downward. Jeroboam, he was bad, right? But look what happened as we read on. We fast forward a generation and we get to Omri. Remember Omri? This is Ahab's dad. And this is what it says about Omri. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. And then we get to Ahab and what happens? Ahab does more evil than Omri. He exceeds his dad. Here's the lesson. When we compromise on the authority of God's word, evil will make headway. And I I know that sounds like a really strong statement. But, you know, it's probably not going to happen overnight. I think it's more like cutting flowers. See, what happens when you cut flowers and you you put them in a vase? They're going to look good for a time, aren't they? But eventually, they're going to decay. And the same thing happens to societies that divorce themselves from the principles that we find in God's Word. You see, when you, when you disconnect yourself from the foundation that allowed you to flourish, eventually, whatever that structure was, it's going to crumble. And so my encouragement is this. As you find yourselves in situations where you have the choice to make, between saying, hey, yeah, I think we should revise the Bible, or fidelity to God's word, choose the latter. Because here's what happens. If we go along with the Jeroboams of the age, where we're headed, it won't be pretty. In the end, you get Ahab. But even when you have an Ahab-shaping culture, even when there's evidence of godlessness all around, we see God is not absent from the situation, is he? He sees the circumstance, he sees what's happening in Israel, and he orchestrates a conversation, a confrontation. We're going to keep reading, and I want you to help me out here, because in order to kind of give us a sense for how this really would have gone over back in Israel, when I finish the verse, I want you to let out a gasp. Can you, can you just kind of... Can you, can we, can we practice that? Like one, two, three. All right, perfect. Perfect. All right, here we go. We read on, and here's what happens. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, say to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. I know. Can you believe that? Like Elijah just drops the bomb. In order to help us understand why this is such a shocking statement, it helps if we know a little bit about worship of Baal. In Canaanite mythology, Baal is the storm god. His nickname is Rider of the Clouds. So he's a pretty important fertility god that brings the rain. Now when we see rain in the forecast, like for last night, what do we do? We get a little annoyed. It's like, oh, I can't go to the park now, or I can't go to the lake, or I can't take the top off my car, or I can't do the yard work I want to do, or it's going to mess up my hair. It's all like all these things come to mind, and none of them are really that positive. But for people back then, rain was a really big deal, because in agricultural society, 
You need rain for the crops, because if you don't have the crops, you don't have food, and if you don't have food, you don't have life. And through extra-biblical history, we get a sense for the power that people attributed to Beal. Historians have uncovered this poem that reads this, the heavens rain oil, the wadis run with honey, so I know that the mighty one Baal lives. Lo, the prince, the lord of the earth exists. So he's a pretty big deal to these people. And look at that third line of the poem. It says, I know that the mighty one Baal lives. Now this, this stands in stark contrast to what Elijah says to King Ahab. We're going to look again at verse 1. He comes in and he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. So this is like ESPN running a commercial for one of those like big pay-per-view world championship fights, letting you know that it's coming. There's about to be a cosmic showdown between the God of Israel and this Baal, Baal fellow. But this is kind of like the Mike Tyson-Pete McNeely fight. It's not going to be much of a contest. You see, Israel has an idol problem, and it's an issue that needs to be addressed. So God says, I'm going to expose the idol, and I'm going to expose him where he's supposedly strongest. Because when I turn off the spigot, it doesn't matter how much people pray to Baal. He isn't going to be able to deliver any rain and then the people will see what kind of God Baal is. So to reveal their folly and to bring them to their senses, Elijah announces ahead of time that this absence of moisture, it isn't some sort of bad break. This is the work of the one true and living God who is Lord over everything. And I can't help but wonder, are there any areas in our life where God would want to come and he would want to put his finger on. And he would want to say, you should be looking to me for your for security, for your happiness, for your significance. And instead, you're over here looking at this other thing. You're prostrating yourself at the altar of popularity or beauty or wealth or power or career, thinking that that if this thing will help you out, then that you'll, you'll have peace of mind, or then you'll have fulfillment, or then you'll have self-worth. And through this passage, God wants to remind us that He's the one that we should be looking to, that we need to be looking to the right source. God wants to give us those things. He can provide them, and we're foolish to go chasing after them elsewhere. We're better off allowing Elijah to serve as our example. Here's what's interesting. After Elijah just kind of out of nowhere bursts on the scene and delivers this message to Ahab, verse 2 tells us this. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there so he went, and help me out, let's read this last sentence together, did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. 
In contrast to those around him, Elijah is a guy who lives his life under the authority of God's word. See, he's obedient in proclaiming the word of God in verse 1. And then in verse 2, we see the word of the Lord comes to him. And then what does he do? He obeys the word of the Lord. And when he obeys the word of the Lord, he experiences the provision of God. Don't miss that. When he's obedient to the word of God, he experiences the provision of God. When he, when he finds himself in the center of God's will, that's when he's experiencing God's provision. As we prepare to close, I want to leave you with three questions to reflect on. We see in this passage that even in the dark times, even when it seems as though Ahab is prevailing, we notice what? That God's in control. God's always working. Just sometimes it might be underground. And that means whatever the situation, it's never hopeless where God is concerned. So question number one, what situation are you in right now where you need to be reminded that God's in control, that God's at work at your behalf, that he's doing some things underground? We also are reminded in this passage that God alone provides life for his people. And you know what? Just like the Israelites, we are tempted to look elsewhere for life. And so the question is, in in, in what areas of your life do you need to shift your gaze and look instead to God for maybe your provision or your protection or for life? Question three, is there any area of your life where you need to be more faithful in obeying or proclaiming God's word? We see Elijah was used by God not because of his education or his accolades. We don't know anything about that. We, we have virtually no introduction to Elijah. We don't know where he went to seminary. We don't know his qualifications. He just appears. But God uses him because he does these two things. He, he obeys God's word and he proclaims God's word. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. And it's a very tangible reminder that just like Elijah, we are also recipients of God's provision, that God also provides for us. God has provided for our greatest need of all. He sent a Savior to save us from our sins. He solved our biggest problem of all, death. You see, Jesus came and and did what all of us have failed to do, He lived his life completely obedient to the word of God. He came and he lived the life that none of us could live. And he died the death that each one of us deserved to die. And because he did that, he is able to provide us with his perfect righteousness. We can receive his righteousness and we can be declared free and forgiven and redeemed. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, I pray that this will be a time when God will speak to you through His Spirit and by His Word. And especially if you're 
in a hard time or if you're in a difficult place right now, that as you partake of the bread and the cup, that you'll be reminded of the great promises of God, that you'll be reminded of his provision, that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also graciously give us all things? That you'll be reminded of Jesus' promise. And he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. The scriptures tell us that this is a special meal and one that should not be entered into lightly. The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup and after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's great news. It's a promise that he's coming back for us whenever we celebrate this meal. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In light of that passage, we know that this meal isn't for everyone. Uh, these elements are available to all who have professed their faith in Jesus. And if you haven't done that yet, I pray that this time would still be meaningful to you and give you space to contemplate your relationship with your Creator. And when you receive the elements, you can just pass them to the person next to you. But maybe there's someone here who has yet to place their faith in Jesus. And you know, today is the day that you should do that. Like a, a drowning man might reach out and grab hold of a life preserver. Through faith, you can reach out and grab hold of the salvation that Jesus offers. It's just as simple as having a conversation with Him and placing your trust in Him. And I want to give you the opportunity to do that now. So I'm just going to invite all of us to, to bow our heads and to close our eyes. And if you're here, and you know that things aren't right with your Creator, you know that there's some separation there. And you know that's because of your sin. And there's some uncertainty in your mind with regards to your eternal destiny. And you want to resolve that right now. You can just say a prayer like this. Jesus, I want to cling to you for my salvation. I believe that you are who you claim to be. You died in my place to bear the penalty for my sin and to give me eternal life. And I believe that you rose again and that you're coming again and I want to live for you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.